You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. From social media to citizen journalism. To the logo on the front of your favourite T-shirt. It's all part of the Communication Mixdown. Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30. Communication Mixdown. Cranking up November 17. Right here on 3CR. And that's us, Communication Mixdown. I'm John and... uh, Welcome to the second show. At home, we were watching the U.S. elections as the results rolled in and that red stain kept creeping across the map behind the camera presenters. Someone sent us a text message asking if we'd emerged from the fetal position yet. Now, for three weeks, I think it's been a constant switching between emerging and resuming the fetal position, as the full impact of the Trump election takes hold. This week on Communication Mixdown, we're going to be looking at the American media and what role it played in the election of Donald Trump and the possible implications for the media in Australia. Dennis Muller is a senior research fellow in the Centre of Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. And he's been keeping a close watch on the American election from a journalist's point of view. Thanks for your time this evening, Dennis. Pleasure, John. Now, you wrote an article in The Conversation recently. It was entitled, How Donald Trump Used the Media and the Industry of Outrage to Win the U.S. Presidency. I wanted to ask you to start with, what did you mean by the term industry of outrage as it applies in the American media? Well, it's been a development that's been about 20 years in the making, John. It Really, the pioneer of it was a guy called Rush Limbaugh, who was a, basically just a DJ, a radio DJ. But he figured out that um, if, he could, uh, if he could manufacture some on-air outrage, you could generate quite a following for yourself. And so... In a sense, he he was the template, he was the model for uh, what we've seen in Australia, in Sydney particularly, with people like uh, Hadley and Jones and Laws and so on. Uh, This kind of manufacturing of of outrage, uh, which then generates ratings, and of course ratings generate advertising, and to complete the circle... Uh, that revenue stream then results in the announcer, in this case Limbaugh, becoming a highly valued asset to uh, to these radio stations. He's got an audience of a bit over 13 million, and he's on a contract uh, of $400 million over eight years. So you can see how there's money in it, and it didn't take very long for other people to, to cotton on, people whose names aren't perhaps very, very familiar in Australia, but are household names in America, Bill O'Reilly, Sean Hannity, people like that. Uh, and then 
the the whole industry got turbocharged with the creation of Fox News by Rupert Murdoch and mm. a guy called Roger Ailes, who was once a Republican Party functionary, and they created this um, this news service based really on the concept of, of outrage madly under the under the uh, banner of balance mm-hmm. uh, and and what fox news did it was it was to conjoin the dynamics of talkback radio with the visual power of television and a bank of uh, conservative outspoken kind of outrage generating commentators and so uh, and of course, Fox News is now the number one cable news channel in the U.S., the, the highest rating uh, news channel in the U.S. So, I wanted to ask uh, you, you, can, you, you: you can see how there's a real successful business model here. Mm. That's what I mean when I talk about the industry of outrage. And in relation to the, the various outlets that you've just mentioned, the American media outlets. You have a special, in this article that I read, uh, uh, you have a, a special opprobrium for certain media players. You've mentioned a few. There's one that you also mentioned, Matt Drudge. Now, he's someone who perhaps in Australia is not that well known. Tell us a bit, little bit about his media empire. Well, Matt Drudge, some years ago, started a thing called the Drudge Report, which was an online um, platform. I'd hesitate to call it a news platform, but that's what he called it. Um, and basically, he just published stuff without uh, much, if any, attempt at verifying any of it. And in fact, he said himself, um, only about 80% of what I publish is true. And of course, the difficulty for anybody reading it is to know which 80% is true and which 20% is, is untrue, mm-hmm. even accepting that the 80% figure's right. So uh, what he did, what Drudge did, was to, uh, in a sense, uh, pioneer this idea of what's now called fake news, which is we stick stuff up on the Internet and we wait to see whether anybody challenges it or not. Uh, And, of course, the trouble with that is that um, by the time somebody has challenged it and the challenge has been checked out and the correction made... uh, it's been estimated an average of about 13 hours passes. Hmm. So uh, in, in, hmm. the old, um, in the old saying, um, lies get twice around the world before truth can get its boots on. <laughs> and, and that's the problem, of course, because yes, yes. Um, by the time the real story comes out, hmm. it's the false story hmm. that's hmm. taken hmm. root. So hmm. that's, that's been Drudge's particular contribution, and, and to make it worse, really... Hmm. Um, Mainstream media, um, in, in particularly in uh, in Australia as well as in the United States, mainstream media has kind of followed this model: put stuff up first and check it later. There's a dreadful mantra which I hear even from um, from journalists in big newspapers here saying, "If it's wrong, it won't be wrong for long." Well, that's just an abandonment of mm. the, the most basic standards of. Um, of journalistic ethics. And you, know, you, f- you check stuff before you publish it, not afterwards. And you feel this, uh, let's call it this uh, uh, journalistic zeitgeist, zeitgeist that's, that's, uh, that's mm. emerged, has played very nicely into Trump's, Trump's camp, as it were. Oh, it has. And his great ally in this has been Facebook. 
And now, and, and speaking of Facebook, we've got to start getting past the idea that Facebook is just a, quote, social media, unquote, platform, because social media has got the flavor of something where, you know, you just like something on a casual basis, or, mm. you know, it's a means of my staying in touch with my kids, or, you know, friends staying in touch with each other. It does all that. But Facebook is now the largest global news dis- dissemination platform doesn't create the stuff but it's the biggest platform of dissemination and even organizations like the abc in australia the new york times and other you know huge media organizations now find they have to actually Hmm. join in beyond facebook because the reach that they that they achieve through facebook is so much greater than the reach that they could achieve through their own websites and now uh, but facebook has been shameless in in its um, dissemination of fake news. It doesn't make any claim to mm. uh, to prior verification. And uh, Mark Zuckerman, the founder, has now come under tremendous pressure as a result of um, of American people now realizing just how much Facebook played into Trump's hands. Yes, yes, uh, and and as I understand it, the uh, there there has been a lot of pressure on him to set up some kind of a gatekeeping process where there is a well, filtering. Well, there has been, but of course he's, he's been ducking and weaving over this for months. For a long, long time, uh, he let the rest of the world believe that decisions on what stories got top billing on Facebook was decided by an algorithm. And of course that played into the narrative that Facebook is unbiased because it doesn't have human beings making these decisions. That was revealed a few months ago to be just nonsense that in fact he had a team of editors who Mm. were making these choices. And when that came out, he was very uh, embarrassed, of course, and said, oh, well, we will sack the editors and we will reinstate the algorithm. Now, in the wake of the Trump election and the attack on him over the publication of fake news, he's now saying, oh, well, maybe we ought to employ some some Mm. fact-checkers. Now... I don't quite know how the algorithm and the fact-checkers are going to work together. I mean, how is the algorithm meant to know if something has been checked or not? Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think Zuckerman has painted himself into a corner here, and at some point he's going to have to say either we're just going to go on as before, publishing stuff where we have no idea whether it's right, wrong, or indifferent, um, or we're going to have some proper system of prior verification uh, and until he decides where he's going to fall on that, I think people will be right to say, well, Facebook is just going on as before. Let me, let's turn to uh, the New York Times, because one of the things you mentioned in your article was that, of course, all the media in America didn't follow this model. And uh, New York Times was one of the, honor, as you, in your words, honorable exceptions. Uh, yes. But do you think their opposition to Trump really counted for much? I think quite the reverse. I think their opposition uh, to Trump probably just reinforced in the minds of Trump's supporters what Trump was saying about what he called the elite media, of which the New York Times is the you know, the typical case, I suppose. Um, I think that when, they, when the New York Times began to call out Trump for lying, it simply proved to Trump's supporters that they were, that the New York Times was as corrupt as Trump said it was. Mm. So I think it probably 
uh, it didn't do um, Trump any harm at all. But the problem for the New York Times was that it's a very conservative uh, newspaper with very high editorial standards. And it has strictly kept its news separate from its commentary. It keeps its commentary mm. on pages that are called comment. It keeps commentary off the news pages. But it became so, I don't think so much outraged, but it just was challenged by the fact that here was Trump breaking all the rules. And here was the New York Times feeling as though it was constrained by the rules. But that constraint was allowing Trump to get away with murder. Mm. So it decided to break with tradition and it put on its front page uh, a commentary in which, among other things, it listed 27 lies that it said Trump had told in the second presidential debate. It was an extraordinarily difficult decision for the New York Times. Mm -hmm. um, but what it did was to give some leadership to the rest of the American media who, to that point, had kind of gone along for the ride with Donald Trump because he was so outrageous, he was good copy, he was good for ratings, he was good for circulation, and consequently, of course, he was good for revenue. Uh, but the New York Times, in taking that stand, um, was an example to the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, and then to the, the smaller uh, regional American newspapers, which actually in America... Are, are a very important part of the uh, of the new of the makeup of the news industry, much more so than in Australia. I wanted to finish with uh, a question about what's been reported this week that uh, Trump called together uh, a meeting of the television news executives and some of the major jur television journalists, and uh, I understand he he gave them a real blast and said that they were being unfair and uh, they were being. Uh, uh, undermining his campaign, what, what do you what what do you make of of this kind of a meeting that he that he had with the journalists? Well, I think it's just outright bullying. I think it's an attempt to intimidate them, uh, and I would be very surprised, given the very vigorous history of Amer of American journalism, if that doesn't backfire very badly on Trump. I mean, all American public figures come under close scrutiny from the media have always. The media use the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, the Free Speech Amendment, to scrutinise their politicians very closely. And I think Mr. Trump can expect to be scrutinised more than most, perhaps subject to more scrutiny than any president since Richard Nixon. Mm -hmm. And so I think any attempt to bully the American media uh, is bound to fail and is simply likely to make them more determined than, than ever to make sure that he's subjected to the closest possible scrutiny. Dennis, we've got to go. I, it's been very interesting talking to you, and I think we'd like to catch up with you uh, maybe a few months' time and get some of your reflections on, on what's been going on as well. So thank you so much for being with uh, Communication Mixdown. Been a pleasure, John. And I was talking with Dennis Muller. He's a senior research fellow in the Centre uh, for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. His article in the conversation is called How Donald Trump Used the Media and the Industry of Outrage to Win the U.S. Presidency. And that's available online. You can check that out. We are Communication Breakdown, Mixed Down, no, no, and uh, we'll be back. Workers of the world unite. In this climate of divide and conquer, it's time for us to take to the streets and defend multiculturalism and diversity. 
Victoria Trades Hall and a coalition of trade unions are organising a global street party and you're invited. Saturday the 10th of December. Rallying at the State Library at 12pm, then marching to Trades Hall for a street party on Ligon Street. There'll be bands, rides for the kids, music and tonnes of food. There'll also be some political forums about race, racism and how to fight back. This event is brought to you by Trades Hall, NTEU, the ETU, the AMIEU, the AMWU, the CWU, the ASU, Geelong Trades Hall, Ballarat Trades Hall and Australia Asia Worker Links. Workers of the world are united and will never be defeated. For more information, contact Matt Kunkel on 0405 748 242. Global Street Party, Saturday the 10th of December. State Library at 12pm. A 3CR supporter. Did you miss the latest episode of your favourite 3CR show? Visit 3CR's new improved website. Now you can listen to the latest episode of almost every 3CR show with one click, including music, arts, community languages, current affairs and more. No need to podcast, no need to download. Visit 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. Then go to your favourite programs page to listen. Made in Melbourne Film Festival returns for its eighth consecutive year, celebrating the drive and diversity of local and Victorian filmmakers, expanding to a massive 13 sessions over six nights, covering short film, feature film, high school, music video and web series at five of Melbourne's most sought-after venues. Made in Melbourne kicks off in December with feature film The Legend of Ben Hall at Acme. Full program and tickets on sale now via mim.org.au. A 3CR supporter. This week we're looking at the connection between the American media culture and mostly unpredicted election of Donald Trump. I might say it's a gaze that is both fascinating and horrible. Brian McNair is a professor of journalism, media and communication at Queensland University of Technology. And judging from a recent piece that he wrote in The Conversation, I'd say he's also looking on at the triumph of Trump with both fascination and horror. Good evening, Brian. How are you? Hi there. Um, I wanted to start with your article in the conversation. It was it entitled After Objectivity, and you write that the mainstream media in America and indeed around the world demonstrated an inability to deal with the challenge of a President Trump using the conventional paradigms of journalism. Could you just briefly for us unpack what you were trying to get at there? Sure. Okay. So the um, the traditional model of liberal journalism, uh, which stresses objectivity, is to kind of create a balanced account of events. So, you know, Donald Trump on the Republican side, Hillary Clinton on the Democratic side, the reporters say, let's say the ABC, he said and then she said, and then he, you know, and that kind of notion of balance uh, of a kind of neutrality, a kind of detachment by the journalist is, is traditionally what we expect from at least, you know, at least what we might call quality journalism. Of course, there's a lot of biased journalism out there, but you know, the journalism that we see 
in the ABC or the BBC in the UK or in the mainstream media in the, in the US is, has always been founded on this notion of balance and giving uh, fair representation to diversity of viewpoints. And the, the criterion for determining who is who is the, if you like, the, the legitimate source of, of opinion and viewpoint is very often based on on, on position. So the President of the United States, by definition, is a serious and authoritative and credible figure to be taken seriously and to be given the utmost respect. Likewise, President-elect or, uh, or any, you know, any kind of authority figure. So objectivity kind of hinges on this notion of who is credible, who is legitimate. And, um, and journalists are not used to kind of tackling them head on because they have that credibility. Now, we've had since the Second World War, pretty much, um, a consensus about things like racism, sexism, misogyny, that uh, senior figures do not openly cultivate racism. And if they do, if politicians who have in the past um, espoused racism, we might say, for example, Pauline Hanson in in Australia, Mm. are denounced on those terms. You know, they are not seen as respectable. Um, at least haven't been in the past. Mm. But now we have a situation where the leader of the free world, the the most powerful person in the world, literally, is someone who has been associated quite correctly with openly expressing racist viewpoints, openly expressing misogynistic and sexist viewpoints, openly expressing anti-Muslim or sectarian viewpoints, and so on and so on, views which have not been regarded as... uh, normal before. So a journalist come along and say, right, so I'm going to have to report Donald Trump. Here's what he said. He made a racist statement. Um, and that just goes, you know. So there's a kind of normal normalisation creeps in. If the journalists continue to try this objectivity approach of balance and detachment, suddenly we've got the most outrageous and extreme viewpoints mm. being treated as if they are just normal. Um and that's the, start, the, the point I was making in the article mm. was that this is the beginning of a slippery slope, which, you know, in the past has led to fascism and worse. Um, and if we don't consider how we're going to deal with this, as, a, as if you like, people who would regard racism to be a bad thing, then we're going to end up having people like Trump and Pauline Hanson on the television constantly saying, you know, saying things which are outrageous and which will just generally feel this descent into a much more extreme and um, you know uh, anti-civil political culture the term that the, uh, the word the term that you use in the article is normalization I think that was a yes. very useful term and as I understand it as exactly as you've said is that with the reporting of Trump's offensive statements though and policies, They've been given a kind of public legitimacy that in in the past perhaps would not have have been there in the main, particularly in the mainstream media. You use an interesting example as a hypothetical as the um, the head of the Ku Klux Klan, David Duke, becoming the go to spokesperson for certain yes. types of issues. Yes, and why not? I mean, if he's if if indeed you know Trump has not denounced the Ku Klux Klan's uh, support. Of his uh, views, he openly cultivated uh, the white supremacist vote uh, in the US. So now that he's in power, and now that his supporters like Stephen Bannon 
and others with a with a proven track record of of, uh, of, of support or or at least condoning white, white supremacy. Why not have um, someone like David Duke on, on CNN saying what he thinks of President Trump's policies? It, it, that that is a logical next step. Uh, you know, as as regrettable as it would be, the logic of applying an objectivity paradigm to the new president and his supporters would be that they are now the respectable leaders of the country. Mm. Therefore, their views should be taken with just as much seriousness as, say, Hillary Clinton or or, or the Democratic opposition in the Senate or, or whatever. So, you know, my, my, um, my article was trying to draw attention to this risk, this danger, if you like, of normalisation, which is not, if you like, it's not the journalists' fault in the sense that they intentionally wish to do it this way. It's just... The, the application of their normal objectivity uh, practices leads to this giving legitimacy to what would previously have been regarded as extreme viewpoints. And, and, and we see this in happening in Australia. OK, in Australia now, it's still the case that someone like Pauline Hansen, when she makes a statement about Muslims, is reported as extreme. But what happens if she... Um, if she wins a majority in the in mm. parliament mm. in the future, mm. then it's suddenly well, you know, this is this is the normal. This is what democracy has produced. Therefore, we have to report it within the framework of balance and objectivity and detachment. I think this is where the, uh, as I said at the in, in my introduction, the fascination and the horror that comes with looking on at the media at this point. And I think your your view of it, I I think, does raise some rather horrific. Implications, and I think you, you've mentioned this already. The descent into normalization in these in these terms, in, in in normalizing the unacceptable, is a disturbing echo of the rise of fascism in Germany in the 1930s. Absolutely, yes, and and Europe um, and the rise of fascism was was a democratic process. It was not a it was not uh, you know there was not a coup which did sort of led to Nazism. It was a series of elections which then. Led to a government which became increasingly authoritarian, but with popular consent, with the majority vote, and the media followed suit. So there was a sort of gradual process of of anti-Semitism in that case becoming more and more normal uh, mm. and more main, mainstream to the point where not being anti-Semitist, sorry, not being anti-Semitic was grounds for being, you know, sent off to a concentration camp or something. So that's. That historical parallel may seem seem hyperbolic, it may seem extreme, but if you look at the history books, that is exactly what Mm. happened, and you cannot cannot assume that something like that could not happen again. Look, I I would very much like to talk further with you, and I, I I had questions, in fact, about Peter Dutton's comments this week and other things that he's been saying and the way those things are, I guess, exactly as you're been talking about them as it's it's a it's a form of reporting and it's necessarily a journalistic paradigm but i'm afraid we're running out of time uh brian and maybe we can check okay. back with you um uh, in a couple of a uh, couple of months and see how how things are going and and also get your absolutely pr- perspective yes. John, on things. very happy to uh, very happy to do that thank you for having me on this afternoon and thank you for being on communication mixdown and I was talking there with Brian McNair. He's a professor of journalism, media, and communication at the University of Queensland, uh, Queensland University of Technology. Excuse me. His piece is called "After Objectivity?" Question mark. 
and it was in the conversation. You could find it online. And, well, we're just about out of time. This has been Communication Mixdown, and I'm John Langer, and we will be back speaking to you next week.